Hello and welcome to the Open Universe podcast, the very first episode in this series that isn't too grandiose and ambition to state right from the very beginning. My name is Sanak and I'm joined here by my office mate and friend Anna. Anna, would you like to say hello to everyone? Hello everyone. Nice and succinct as always. Thank you very <laughs> much. So we are both um, astronomers living in Boston, Massachusetts. So the name of this podcast is not just a play on the concept of open uh, universes, which is a theme within cosmology, but it's really trying to say that the discovery of the universe or this process of understanding more about where we come from and what it is that actually surrounds us is really an open endeavor, both because there is quite a lot that we don't yet know about the universe that we live in, but also because the study of the universe is really something done by humans. And irrespective of uh, what our educational background is, where we come from, what gender lines or racial lines we uh, define ourselves by, there's a vast amount of mystery associated with the universe that is agnostic to all of that in some sense. And so the voyage of discovery really is uh, kind of open to everyone. Anna, do you want to give a little more of a disclaimer as to exactly why we are making this podcast series? Well, actually, the the idea to first create this conversation-style podcast on astronomy came to mind when observing the rise of chess on Twitch. So at first glance, you might think like that's a weird way for an astronomy podcast to start. But it was really amazing watching how during the lockdown, so many people from all walks of life got interested in chess. And it was mostly because professional chess players were walking through the different strategies in their discussions with the chat on Twitch. So wait, sorry, Anna. So so Twitch is what, like a a video sharing or a live streaming thing or something? Yeah, it's a live streaming and it's usually games, like computer games. So people, Uh most of the people there play games and then have people watching them play games. But there are also Uh chess streamers and now they manage to (laughs) popularize chess. So some of the sort of traditional gaming streamers are now also playing the, the, I guess, non-traditional online game of chess. (laughs) You know, chess is one of those games which I've learned the rules to like a hundred times over. um, And I always forget what each of the pieces are supposed to. I know the pawn moves forwards and and that's roughly where my knowledge ends. Maybe this is the reason to now uh, dive deeper into the world of, of Twitch, to be honest. And all these new generation things I'll never get my head around. Anyhow. Anyhow. But yeah, I mean, I think I think that's exactly the point that, you know, the like people who play chess have invested so much time into doing that and learning rules and all of the all of the strategies. But what they are showing is that even people with casual familiarity with the rules can enjoy the, the game when someone walks them through. And so this is a little bit of what we are trying to do in this podcast. And yeah. Sonic and I discuss what would be the, the best way to do it. And we thought you would focus every episode on one scientific paper, but really not just discuss or present the discovery made in this paper, but also talk about the journey that was described there. So yeah, maybe one doesn't really go searching the scientific literature when they're in the uh, (laughs) need for tales of great daring and ingenuity, but some of the best... uh, Great daring. That's fantastic. I know, but... 
paradigm shifting papers, where some truly new idea comes uh, comes across, it actually did require daring. And so reading about this is very exciting. And we want to share part of our excitement with astronomy with the wider community. And so this is why we started this, this podcast series. Yeah, Anna, when we were sort of talking about this a couple of weeks ago now, I guess, I think we thought of it as a means to kind of demystify science at some level, isn't it? Because yeah. there is this notion that, especially something like astronomy or cosmology, where the topics are inherently ethereal, almost intangible concepts, that there seems to be a disconnect maybe between what astronomers do and maybe people who don't do astronomy or who aren't well-versed in astronomy think about. Yeah, and it's... really the, the thing to stress in, in, in some sense is that you know, astronomy or any kind of research endeavor is really ultimately done by people who are, you know, driven by a particular question that keeps them awake at night. I know <laughs> and I've spent many, many evenings in lockdown kept awake by the mysteries of dark matter, which is my own uh, particular affectation. I'm sure something similar would be the case for you as well. Yeah, sometimes exactly the same thing. Sometimes exactly <laughs> the same thought. Yeah, you can see why Anna and I get along very well. Yeah, and... I think that starting with the episode title, How Can Seismic Activity on Stars Help Us Discover the Next Earth, really plays up to what everyone wonders about. Is there yes. life uh, beyond the Earth? Yeah, so nothing like starting with the most clickbait title that <laughs> one could possibly imagine right in the very outset. Eh? That's, a, that's one way to look <laughs> at it, of course. Yeah. <laughs> but we don't just want a click uh, with clicks. It truly is a, a topic of wide appeal and as evidence with all of the popular culture, like the science fiction novels that, that tackle this question just in a, in a very different way. And even though those sci-fi novels predate that even the discovery of the first extrasolar planet, so the planets beyond our solar system orbiting around a different star, which happened in 1995 and just got the Nobel Prize last year. Today, there are more than 4,000 exoplanets known. So it really looks like we might be getting there. We don't know when, but we are doing our best. And, and definitely one place that we know life exists is here. So most of our searches now are focused on finding planets that look kind of like the Earth. Yeah, by the way, when Anna says that we aren't necessarily looking for the clicks, well, I definitely am looking for the clicks. So there's that. So maybe she's a better person than I am. Um, anyhow. <laughs> that was very honest of you, Sonic. Well, never leave the listeners in doubt. So the field of exoplanets really has sort of grown quite a lot in the past couple of decades, hasn't it? And from what I can tell, really, the, the real sort of splurge in interest since the discovery of the very first one has been the advent of the space telescope that is of primary interest in today's episode, which is the Kepler telescope, which was, of course, a NASA-commissioned telescope, sadly no longer in commission, having been put out of operation, was it two years ago now? No, yeah, I think so. Well, right. I mean, please uh, don't send in any hate mail if, uh, if that turns out to be wrong. <laughs> so Kepler really has been so important in discovering exoplanets that out of more than 4,000 once discovered, Kepler dis discovered 2,300 of those. And there is this great graphic yeah. showing the, the number of exoplanets known as a function of time. And it's really obvious when Kepler was launched because then the number of discoveries just shoots up. Really, it, it's been a 
such a valuable instrument. And even though we've all been sad once it was decommissioned, it, I think it actually outlived its nominal mission like quite a number of years. So, uh, and it kind of opened the field of discovering exoplanets through this transit method. So, Anna, you, you, you brought up this idea of the transit method. I guess it's maybe worth just uh, spending a couple minutes discussing what that actually is. So this is a pretty straightforward sounding idea, which turns out to be very powerful when it comes to discovering planets beyond our solar system. And really, it is looking at the transiting motion of a planet in front of another star. So, you know, if you think of most solar systems looking something like our own, you would think that there's a central star around which planets will be orbiting. And if there was nothing orbiting, in other words, if there were no other planets in that solar system, you would think that, you know, the typical brightness of or the flux of light that we are receiving from that star is roughly constant as a function of time. But of course, if something passes by in front of it, you might expect that for the duration of the passage of that object in front of the star, there might be a slight dip in how much light is actually coming to us because, of course, there's something blocking its path. And really, this is uh, what the transit method is, which basically tries to identify planets that are orbiting around stars by just looking at what fraction of time the total luminosity of the star is reduced from its original output. And what's quite interesting about this method is that the extent to which we see a dip in the total light actually tells us something quite unique about the size of this planet relative mm. to the size of the star itself. And that's exactly the thing. For small planets like the Earth, this change in brightness when it crosses the, the surface of the star will be very small. And this would work perfectly if stars didn't change brightness of themselves. But to a large degree, most stars don't. But if we look at the sun in detail, we'll see that the surface of the sun actually flickers. And this is caused by the blobs of gas that are being heated in the interior of the sun and then as they are then lighter rise up to the to the surface mm. and produce this slightly hotter spot and that is also slightly brighter at the surface on the sun we can observe this directly because there are specialized cameras that, that can take an image of the sun on other stars this is much much harder and we can only measure the overall change in brightness so this becomes somewhat problematic when this change in brightness due to the motions of gas in the stellar interiors are sort of at the same magnitude as the dimming of the star expected from the exoplanet traveling in front of it. This process of hot blobs of gas moving up to the surface of the star and cooling and falling back down, this is actually what we mean by seismic activity. So it's slightly different uh -huh. than what we are familiar with from, uh, from the earthquakes uh, on, on our own planet, but it still has to do with internal processes in the star itself. Yeah, so it's not quite movements of tectonic plates on the surface of the star, is it? like it no, is on, on the really. earth, for example. But it is still something that is viscous, let's say. I guess in the earth, uh -huh. we have the magma, the stars, we have yeah. hot gas. So to some extent, it's not too big of a leap from, from seismology on the earth to seismology on the stars. The kind of mental imagery that I had as you were explaining this is kind of like watching a pan of water boiling away. If you mm. If you think of the water being obviously heated up and, and 
boiled, I guess. And then as the steam rises, you see these blobs of, you know, the superheated water rising to the surface. And then eventually these bubbles then sort of burst and then fall back down onto the surface. And in, in some ways, this is exactly what's happening on the surface of the stars, where the convective motions of the really superheated gas that actually, you know, illuminates and makes the stars shine is the equivalent of the boiled water in, in that particular scenario. And this whole process is actually, it turns out, something called uh, granulation, which is a term that I had to uh, look up as part of my background reading on this. You stuff. must have come across the, the images of granulation on the, or movies of granulation on the sun in your sleuthing. Yes, it's actually very cool. I mean, so if anyone wants to, you can try and look up these time lapses of granulation on the surface of the sun that's been taken by a telescope known as the Daniel Inoue telescope. And it's really quite cool to actually see these convective motions of the gas actually roaming around <laughs> the exterior of the sun and of course it's the only uh, star for which we can actually see this directly because it's nearby unsurprisingly okay so now we have uh, sort of described both concepts in our title we said why we wanted to search for for the next earth and why it's hard and we described the seismic activity so we might just get started with the paper that we want to discuss it along these uh. lines and the paper itself is titled An Observational Correlation Between Stellar Brightness Variations and Surface Gravity. So how does this work? <laughs> uh, well, thank you very much for that. Let me first say to everyone here that this was pretty much the most difficult way that we could have chosen to start this because I'm very much not the kind of astronomer who knows anything about the real universe. I'm a sort of theorist by trade and that's not true by trade and according true. to my heart as well and whereas anna really is the the true astronomer's astronomer between us before we get into the details of the title it's probably worth uh, saying who the author of the paper is and the science behind it so the paper that is of particular interest in 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 this episode is a scientific investigation that has been led by an astronomer by the name of fabien bastien who is an assistant uh, professor of astronomy at penn state and there's actually quite a, an interesting connection between uh, Fabienne and uh, Anna. So do you want to explain what that might be to the listeners? You make it sound very mysterious, Sonek, um, but it's not that much of a mystery. I met Fabienne when I was in grad school and she came to visit to give a science talk and she was reporting uh, results from the study made in 2013. So it was brand new at the time. And even though this is not my field, uh, as maybe Sonak led you to expect, <laughs> I, I was really struck by, by how creative the idea was and how, how neatly everything worked out. So even though we do have talks every week, uh, and I've listened to yes, hundreds of them <laughs> at the present, this one did stick in my mind because it was something out of the ordinary and I thought this would be a great place to start our podcast series even though I guess neither of us is really an expert on the topic which may be apparent. <laughs> well it, it clearly left uh, enough of an impression on you and I bet you didn't realize that seven years down the line you would one day be launching your career in podcasting discussing the contents of that talk to you. So the, so the primary focus of this particular investigation 
is on the measurement of a quantity associated with stars known as surface gravity. And through the course of this episode, we'll basically try and explain why measuring surface gravity is important from the perspective of firstly knowing something about stars, how that might be connected with the discovery of exoplanets, and how this idea of granulation or these sort of surface variations or the seismology of stars actually relates to surface gravity. So let's start with the last bit first. So we discussed how the boiling pan of water was uh, launching these bubbles of superheated water or steam that rises to the surface and then drops back down onto the surface of the water itself. And of course, the same process was observed on the sun. Now, of course, how quickly this process actually takes place, how quickly the hot gas is actually launched from the surface and how quickly it then falls back down will ultimately be determined by the gravity of the object that is actually launching these processes. So are you saying that if you had a pot of boiling water on the moon, it would be boiling differently than on the earth? Yeah, and that's, that's, that's exactly right. Because of course, if you think that the amount of gravity that is generated by the moon is lower than the amount of gravity generated by the earth, by is it a si- the gravity is a six? six? Yeah. So what that would therefore imply is that how quickly the water would basically fall back onto the surface of the pan would be far slower than it would be in the case of the Earth itself. So objects which have a really large inherent gravitational field associated with them, which are presumably going to be objects that are very, very massive or very, very compact, are the objects that have a very large amount of surface gravity, which is simply a measure of the mass of the object divided by the square of its radius. And the surface gravity is very directly connected with the ability of objects to actually jet off from the surface and then fall back in. And this is actually tied in with a concept that perhaps many of the listeners here will be familiar with, which is this idea of what's known as escape velocity. So Anna, I'll let you join in this one because I know you, like the true astronomer you are, have been doing calculations even prior to this podcast to uh, exemplify this very point. Yeah, we wanted to make some connection to, to of these scales for surface gravity in different uh, kinds of stars and connect them to something that is happening on the Earth. So people have been launching rockets that move beyond the Earth and explore the solar system and to launch the orbit to leave the Earth, it needs to be moving with a speed of 11.2 kilometers per second. That's pretty fast. So that's, that's pretty that's faster fast. faster than I can walk yeah, for sure, yeah. <laughs> yeah, you would have to break a sweat, yeah. definitely. Yeah. But that's really not that fast compared to the escape velocity from the sun, which is more like 600 kilometers wow. a second. And we can understand that sun is, is bigger than the Earth, but it's also much more massive. So it's understandable that the escape mm. velocity is larger. But maybe counterintuitive is that a small star like neutron star, which is only has 10 kilometers size, yeah actually has a escape velocity that is one third the speed of light just because it is uh, it is so compact and as someone mentioned the surface gravity goes as mass but divided by the the size so if you have a small size you can also have a very very large surface gravity yeah so like think about almost you know something being three times as heavy as the sun but all of its mass being compressed into just a few kilometers and that's 
roughly, you know, how dense a neutron star is, which really kind of shows why their gravity and therefore the ability for, or inability, in other words, for things to escape from them is so, so uh, difficult. Yeah. On the other hand, there are some stars that kind of have the mass similar or slightly larger than the sun, but are much, much larger than the sun. So the, the largest one has a size that is uh, 755 times larger than the oh sun. Goodness. And so its surface gravity or is, is much lower than the sun by a factor of 10. So to escape this red supergiant star, it would only, mm-hmm. only in quotation marks, take 60 kilometers per second. So that is still, you know, six times uh, larger than the velocity required to leave the Earth. But astronomers like to think in factors of 10. So if it's like 10 and 60, that is basically the same thing. Yeah, so it it really sounds like it's not really so much how heavy the star is that matters so much, but really in how dense it is or maybe how puffy it is, right? So the sort of more compact uh, a star gets, the stronger its surface gravity and therefore the harder it is to escape from it. And therefore, these granulation effects that we spoke about, you know, this idea of hot gas flowing out and then falling back in, presumably that will be somewhat related to the surface gravity. And equally, if some star was puffier, like the example that you gave of the largest known star, then even despite its really almost extreme mass, you would expect that the surface gravity is actually not so dramatic compared to perhaps other things like neutron stars in our Indeed. So that's the that's the relation that, yeah. that we would naively expect that there would be sort of more granulation in stars that have sort of weaker surface gravity because it's sort of easier to to move around a star because it doesn't pull as strongly. Yeah, no, that's a great point. So that that would mean that if we somehow had like you know a way to measure say what the granulation is or a way to measure what the surface gravity is, in other words then we might actually be able to get a handle on how heavy or and how big that star is, right? Which Yeah, that sounds then, like a very good thing to have. <laughs> yeah, so let's try and wind this conversation back to this whole idea of exoplanets and mm-hmm. discovering things that look a bit like Earth. So, you know, give the listeners an impression that we didn't just choose this title to draw them in, but actually has a relevance to it. So I so like how, how you're how coming this... back around to this non-opportunistic um, uh, <laughs> read of our title. <laughs> yeah, I think after I exclaimed that the only thing I really care about is the clicks, I don't think I can actually go back on that. Yeah, you're um, making your way around it, I think. Uh, <laughs> right, <okay>. so, <laughs> so anyway, Anna, if we, so how, how does this all actually relate to this idea of finding Earth-like planet? How does surface gravity and stuff actually tie in? So the reason why we got so excited to talk about this paper and why astronomers are excited to measure surface gravity, even though just taken on its own, you might think that this is not something that we would find very useful, is precisely because it does give us a handle on the total size of the star. And this is important if we wanted to find planets like the Earth, it is important to know what their sizes are and what their masses are. And one way to estimate the size of the planet, we need to know the size of the star as well. The transit method that we talked about at the beginning of the podcast measures really the ratio of the sizes uh, of the star and the planet. So we need some other observation that will provide sort of an independent handle on, on the size of the star so that we can estimate what the size of the planet is. And this is 
where surface gravity comes in because it does provide that extra handle on the mass and the size of the star itself. Yeah, so that means we could kind of almost find objects, if I've understood this correctly, that have roughly the same surface gravity as perhaps a sun does. And then you might think that those stars, even if we can't directly measure how heavy they are or directly measure what their sizes are, just by knowledge of them being in the same part of the diagram, so to speak, of surface gravity compared to the sun, you'll at least know that they're not incomparable, at least in terms of their gravitational influence on other planets. Yeah, so this is exactly right. We not only want to discover a planet like the Earth, we also care about that it is orbiting a star like the Sun, as we know that the conditions for life exist in such a system. So finding the combination of both is what really we've been focusing as a as a as a whole astronomical community of not just finding any planet like the Earth, but also planet like the Earth around the star like the sun. I guess the primary objective of the authors who are being spotlighted in today's episode is that they essentially come up with a new way to actually characterize what the surface gravity of stars is, even in the absence of the sort of high resolution granulation data that we might typically require to actually measure this quantity. And they do rather an amazing job of showing how a pretty simple sounding measurement, which is quite possible to do for most stars that we have some good amount of data for, can actually give us a very detailed level of insight into exactly what the gravitational conditions around these stars is, and therefore uh, what perhaps their potential to host Earth-like planets might be. And the data set that they make use of in this case is, again, going back to our, our old friend, the Kepler data. Yeah, this is really amazing. It's and we don't really wa- we really don't want to sell this shirt. This paper was enabled by the Kepler mission, and as we talked about, the, the mission was designed so that it can detect exoplanets like the small variation in brightness. And what it also found, even in in, in most of the stars, it observed that stars vary in and of itself. And there, there's this process of granulation that we can now detect or that Kepler detected in so many stars, which previously was not the case. So now going from the one star where we could prove that the granulation was happening, we now had a sample of 150,000 stars that was presented in this paper. That, to excuse a rather awful pun, is quite a seismic shift, isn't it? (laughs) It is. (laughs) It is. Okay, thank you. Thank you for not logging off immediately. (laughs) I can help myself, sorry. Um, (laughs) No, I I liked it. Well, at least that makes one. Yeah, so what Fabian Bastien and and her collaborators actually do in this paper is uh, the following. So Kepler allows us to measure something called a light curve, which is very simply put, just a measurement of how much light is being output by the star as a function of time. And then they sort of decide, okay, well, we see that there are variations in the brightness of the star as we keep observing them. And let's see if we can actually characterize how quickly the star's brightness is changing over some fixed time window. And in particular, they say, okay, let's break up this light curve into little eight-hour chunks and see how quickly the brightness actually changes within each eight-hour chunk. 
And if, for example, this variation in brightness over this defined time period is related to granulation or these convective motions on the gas, which are ultimately tied in with the gravitational conditions of the star, there must be some correlation between the extent of this brightness fluctuation in an eight-hour time window and the surface gravity itself. And I found it really interesting the the use of this eight hour time window and i kind of wonder like how did they come up with the number to this so they mentioned that this is sort of the expected time scale for the uh, for the granulation to happen so yeah so it makes physically sense that this is the time window they studied but i just wonder how much trial and error was there did they try it with like seven and a half hours or nine hours yeah. how did they settle on the eight hours it's such a nice, simple number. Yeah, I feel like we should leave a dramatic pause after that statement just to uh, let it <laughs> sink in. Yeah, yeah that, that really is quite surprising, actually. And I guess naively, as someone who doesn't work directly in this field, I wouldn't have guessed that to be perhaps this characteristic timescale over which one might expect these variations. But that turns out to be the important quantity to measure for stars. So in, in particular, if if any of you all have uh, taken the liberty to actually <laughs> open up the paper and, and look at the analysis as done by these authors. And there is the link to the archive version of this paper, which is publicly available anywhere in the world the real hardcore listeners amongst us, yes. And so, so what the authors show is that if you actually you know, take this measurement of you know, how quickly the brightness of the star changes in an eight-hour time span and plot this alongside a measurement of the surface gravity through some kind of orthogonal or some additional technique, you find that if you then put the data together for a whole slew of stars as measured by uh, the Kepler satellite, you actually find a rather strong correlation between each of these two quantities. Um, so Anna, where, where did the authors actually get a measurement of the surface gravity for these stars? I mean, presumably Kepler isn't able to directly measure it, or is it? Yeah, th there are different ways of measuring uh, surface gravity. So this is not, not the only one. Uh, but what the authors did here, they analyzed a subset of stars observed with Kepler itself, just in a different mode. So most stars that, that Kepler observed, those 150,000, basically what Kepler was doing was monitoring them every half an hour. It would record, okay, this is how uh -huh. bright the star is. But for some stars... I think around 2,000 of, of sun-like stars. Uh -huh. Kepler was taking images basically every two minutes. So it had much more precise data. In addition to the granulation process happening on the stars that we already described, when observed in a lot of detail, we can actually measure that there are sound waves traveling inside of the stars. And so in a way, the whole huh. star is ringing. And you must almost say that every star has its own song. So those notes or frequencies tell us something about the mass, the size, the age of the star. So this is where the authors of this paper got this independent measurement of surface gravity, because for the small set of stars, they could measure the the surface gravity, which is just the ratio of the mass and the radius squared from this internal ringing of stars themselves. Of course, this is 
this is hard. This is much harder than just measuring the granulation, which is why it's only been measured for, for a small number of stars. Yeah, that's very poetically put. So I guess in, one way to think about it is that while all stars will have or will show some kind of variation in their brightness over time, only a few of them sing a song that is loud enough for us to be able to detect them with our instruments. And so what we can then do really is to see for the small set of stars for which we have both the song and this brightness variation, we can see if there's some kind of correlation between these two quantities and say if we think all other stars essentially sing from the same hymn sheet, <laughs> then, then we can essentially build a very simple model for how the brightness variation actually correlates with this seismic activity, or in other words, the surface gravity, and then apply it to other sets of stars for which we don't have the surface gravity measurement. And to be honest, of course, we, we do rely on our on this assumption that we think that all stars behave the same, but it was kind of nice in this paper how the authors actually checked this relation on an independent data point, which is the sun. They yeah. put it on that same relation and it was bang on, which was pretty exciting and sort of a check mark saying that we might be doing pretty well overall. Yeah, I think that's a pretty good, I, I think that whole process that they outline in this particular investigation is a very nice summary in some sense of how science works at some level, where we are driven by you know, some kind of question that we are trying to answer. And we have a subset of data for which the key components needed to answer this question are actually measured well. We then build a model that we hope can be extended to other classes of objects that are perhaps somewhat similar in nature anyway. And then, of course, a robust test of this model that we can build with the small data is to actually see if it makes accurate predictions for other components for which we have measurements but have not been used to actually design our model itself. And yeah. in that case, the sun essentially acts as our guiding rod in some sense. And the exciting part of this method is that it's fairly simple. So it only uh, yeah. needs a light curve, so a change of brightness in a star as a function of time to be able to estimate the surface gravity. And what the authors did in this paper is they then had taken all of the 150 stars in Kepler and provided the surface gravities. One of the important things to stress is that Really, really, it can't be underestimated how important it is to actually be able to have another quantity that correlates well with this idea of surface gravity. Because if you wanted to measure surface gravity for a whole bunch of stars using traditional techniques, then that would actually demand having these extremely high resolution telescopes that are taking lots of data for individual stars over a long period of time, which obviously therefore limits the total sample size that you can actually retrieve as a result. But if we can just do a very simple measurement of you know, what the light curve is and how that changes over some larger chunks of time, then it means that we can actually then do a very simple set of measurements for each individual star and spend less time on individual objects and therefore get a much larger sample of uh, stars actually being measured as part of our observational exercise. And of course, more data has uh, you know, never been a bad thing, I guess. No, and it's, that's exactly the point. Even if the total observing time to measure the light curve is longer than, say, taking an exposure with a high-resolution spectrograph, 
in order to measure the surface gravity. There are already a number of observatories that are providing this light curves and currently operational is TESS, which is another space, NASA space mission, again, designed to search for exoplanets. And they're pretty much a Kepler successor. It's just that they are now observing yeah. not just one patch of the sky, but basically all across the sky. So we will have light curves for millions of stars already just out there, which we can be used to measure surface gravity using the, this, this method. So uh, that really means then that the number of objects for which we'd be able to potentially make this kind of surface gravity determination could go up by more than a factor of 10. Yes, indeed. Yes, now we have possibly more as well. Possibly yeah. more. Yeah. Uh, yeah, this is truly unprecedented, this, this rise in the number of stars that we have surface gravity measurements for. Yeah, and, and so if you just were to do an estimate, you would think that if the number of objects for which we could feasibly measure things like surface gravities to determine how sun-like or not they may be goes up by a factor of 10 or more, then the potential sites that could actually host Earth-like planets, which is, of course, the main uh, theme behind this episode, will also go up by a similar factor. So our likelihood of eventually perhaps detecting an exoplanet that resembles something like the Earth and the sort of surroundings of the Earth will also potentially grow exponentially as a result of tests being around. Yeah, I like our chances. It's looking very promising. How, how quickly do you think it's going to happen? So I just, in checking the contributions of Kepler to the number of exoplanets, uh, I yeah. saw that TESS already has 51 exoplanets discovered. Uh, oh, wow. So okay. it is getting there. It's Confirmed planets discovered by TESS is 51. I'm sure there will be, it's it's a mission that's still ongoing and people are analyzing data and becoming more and more sophisticated. So what Kepler did find, say, out of 150,000, something like 2,000 stars, this sort mm-hmm. of gives you a sense of success rate <laughs> that we can expect, yeah. uh, expect for TESS as well. And so how long is TESS uh, supposed to be around for then? How long is it taking data? That's a good question. It's already been operational, I think, for a couple of years now. Yeah, that's right. And I think that that's basically the the nominal mission. And after that, it becomes tailored. So actually, anyone with a good idea can propose to test. And I think it works this way, that you make your science case and say, okay, we really wanted to measure brightness of this particular star. And if you have a good reason for wanting to do that, you think there is something interesting that then tests provides you with a very good light curve. Do you think we've uh, inspired anyone listening to this to actually make a case for test missions next? Well, if no one has, I think we have already noticed that we ourselves have been getting new ideas. So if that's the only test proposal that comes out of this podcast, I'd be also happy. So next. Yeah, I've got to say, I've, I've not really sat and thought so hard about exoplanets uh, at any previous point in my life. So at least from that perspective, it's been quite refreshing. Yeah, so... I mean, I've got to say, I've, I've, I've really been inspired, not but I won't say by the sound of my own voice, but I've <laughs> really been inspired by uh, <laughs> the stuff that I've read about during the course of you know, preparing for this uh, particular episode. And it really seems like the next few years of exoplanet science is going to be really quite exciting. And uh, you know, who knows what we'll end up learning about stars or the planets around stars or potentially 
identifying habitable worlds uh, beyond our own. Yeah, that's definitely something worth looking forward to. And actually, and I was just looking at the outlook for exoplanet science, and one very optimistic prediction was that by 2050, we will have more than 100 million planets known. So, 100 million, yes. So, surely, million. surely, surely, one of those. surely one of those has to be a planet where Liverpool hasn't won the Premier League this year. Oh, no. <laughs> Sorry, I had to drop that in there. Well, on that, I don't know if that's optimistic or disheartening. Yes, depending on who depending you're on cheering your, for. Depending on your perspective, I suppose. I guess it's a good uh, place to wrap up today's episode. Um, and do you think anyone else is going to listen to another one? Yeah, let's hope so. I hope so. I'm optimistic. Are you? <laughs> well, you know, I will at least pass it on to my mom. So... There's that. Great. Well, uh, thank you, everyone, then, for listening, and we hope you enjoyed it. And, well, stay tuned for the next episode. And until then, take care and goodbye. Bye, everyone.